Again, good morning. Welcome uh, to Homefuss Baptist Church. And if you're there in Malachi chapter 4, I want to point out a couple things before we do our reading this morning. Malachi is the last book in our order of the Old Testament, but it is not the last book in the order of the Hebrew Old Testament. Uh, so they do a little bit different there. Uh, what Christians call the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, is called the Tanaka in, to the Jews. And even though sometimes, sometimes Torah is specifically as direct, as, uh, as a reference to the first five books, sometimes it's loosely uh, a reference to all of them. Um, but as you can see on the slide, I, I've built a slide here, and we have our Christian order and we have our Hebrew order. Now you see some, some differences in there. Our arrangement has 39 books, and the Jews' arrangement, the Hebrew arrangement, has 24 books. And while that is, of course, a little bit different, all the books are there. They just uh, put them in different um, uh, different categories. As you can see, our 39 books are, are in a different order. Uh, they put their, all of their minor prophets, they're considered one book. Uh, another couple of examples is um, Chronicles. You see, under prophets, you see Samuel and Kings. Uh, in our Bible, it's First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. And in some of the other ones, Ezra and Nehemiah, that's one book uh, in, the, in the Hebrew Bible. Um, but very interesting is that I want to point out is the order in ours, Malachi is the last book, but theirs is Chronicles or our second Chronicles. Now, it's believed that Ezra, the, the prophet named Ezra, he's the one that placed these books in the order that they have them. And I built this second slide to give us kind of an idea. I know the words are kind of small there, but on the, on the left side, we have the post-exilic period, the time after the Jews were after they left Babylon and before the close of the New Testament canon. And then we have what, we, what we'll call silent years, and we'll talk a little bit more about that this morning. No word or prophecy from God. And then we have God speaking to Zechariah to announce the birth of John the Baptist. But you see all these prophets down here. We have Ezra and Nehemiah. They're kind of they're overlap a little bit. Ezra took over the ministry from, uh, or Nehemiah took over the ministry from Ezra and uh, Zerubbabel. And then we have the prophets down there, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Um, Malachi is probably a little bit farther, or Nehemiah should go a little farther because Nehemiah and Malachi were contemporaries. Haggai, or Malachi was younger than Nehemiah, but he preached and prophesied uh, through him. If you remember, Nehemiah was charged um, to build the city walls and the roads, and uh, some of the things that Nehemiah preached about is the same thing that Malachi preached about. So we believe they're in the same time period for that and, and some other reasons. So Nehemiah actually picked up where Ezra left off in compiling these books, and he appended his book, um, going back to that, that thing there, he appended his book, bearing his name, Nehemiah, to Ezra. So before Nehemiah was written and before Malachi was written, so you see in the 12, Malachi and Nehemiah, all other books were arranged by Ezra. And the only thing left was Nehemiah and Malachi. So it's believed that Nehemiah just added his book to Ezra's, and then he just put Malachi in there with the 12 minor prophets, thereby closing out what we call the Old Testament canon. And while Malachi is not last in the Tanakh, it is, he is the last prophet. It is the last word from God. Uh, Chronicles in the, the Chronicles there in the Jews and in our, in our arrangement there ends with King Cyrus giving the decree for the Babylonians to go back. And the only writings after that are Ezra, Nehemiah, the Pochazilic books, and of course some of the minor prophets. So it's not the last book there, but it is the last word from God. Um, and after the writings of this last prophet to the Old Testament, Malachi, there would not be another word from God for over 400 years. And while we, we believe that all Scripture is important, 
because they are all God's words. Uh, this truth, this idea that it's the last word from God for a long time, this places Malachi's writing in a very special category, kind of like Paul's second letter to Timothy, his last words to, to, to Timothy. So we know from other studies in the Bible, namely, namely Hebrews, in diverse manners, God spoke to the Jews, uh, to, the, to the fathers, through prophets for, say, some 4,000 years, but now He would be silent for some 400 years. So how will God's people live when God is silent? When God is silent. In some aspects, we live in a time when God is also silent. Now, only an aspect, because we know that God still works today, and we'll talk about those things as we go through this. So what are we are to do? What are the Jews to do when God is silent? So much so, I've, I made this, uh, the title of this message, but we'll come back to that. At this time, I want you to take your Bible there in Malachi chapter 4, and, and please stand. And we're going we're gonna to read the Word of God. Uh, please stand to honor the, word, the reading of the Word of God. And look at verse number 1 of Malachi chapter 4. The Bible says, For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble, and the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall, and ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Verse 4 says, Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel. With the statutes and judgments, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to, the, to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you again for the reading of your word. We ask that you bless the reading of your word. Help us to be blessed by it. Help us to be blessed by your presence, Lord, and meet with us through the preaching of your word this morning. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please, please be seated. So here we are in the book of Malachi, and we just read the last words that were ever written, uh, that were written to the Jews before the Lord Jesus Christ. So in this passage, there are some, some specifics. There is at least one command, and there is at least two implications or some, some inferences from the text that we can follow. Um, so this is some divine guidance for God's people as they are about to embark on a long trek of not hearing anything um, from the Lord. But I want to say this, by silence, I do not mean peace for the Jews, for they were about to face some of the most significant trials they have ever faced uh, that would rival some of their greatest challenges, Holocaust and future challenges accepted. Uh, but by silence, I also do not mean that God was absent or that He did not lead in certain ways. So I don't want to convey that God was just turned His back on God's people. He just didn't inspire people to write more Scripture for a while. Because after Malachi, the Old Testament Scriptures were complete, and they were awaiting fulfillment. And while God was not absent, nor His hand off the wheel, if you, if you will, there was a marked difference during this time when Israel was without, again, a Scripture-writing prophet. For the first time in a very long time, the Jews did not have an Isaiah. They did not have a Jeremiah. They didn't have, they didn't have an Ezekiel, a Malachi, or a Haggai, or Habakkuk. They didn't have any of those. God was silent. No more scripture writing 
specifically for Israel for a long time. Amos chapter 8, uh, chapter 8, verse 11 states this, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Now, when Amos wrote that, he wrote it to the northern kingdom of Israel as he predicted their downfall to the Assyrian Empire some 300 years prior to this. And while it's unclear if we can apply that verse to the so-called silent years as fulfilled prophecy, the Jews were indeed without a scripture-writing prophet. So there was no new vision, if you will, coming from the Lord. Now, in context, back here in Malachi, we saw on the timeline earlier that the Jews have returned from their exile uh, in Babylon, and the temple has been rebuilt. The roads have even been rebuilt. Malachi's sermons up until this point, as I've already alluded to, have been similar to what Nehemiah was preaching, what Nehemiah was encouraging the people to do, which is ultimately to separate themselves from ungodliness and to live holy. Uh, During Malachi's time, just to give you an idea of what Nehemiah and Malachi, the book of Malachi, talked about, men, Jewish men, were actually divorcing their Jewish wives just so they can marry non-believing wives. Um, some also began to forget the Lord and, and to uh, not do the right sacrifices, and they were refusing to willingly give to the temple. But instead of giving to the temple, they used that abundance to live dishonorably uh, before God and man. So Malachi and Nehemiah are preaching in this kind of context. And like many preachers today, and even in New Testament times, Malachi, Habakkuk, Haggai, Nehemiah, Ezra, all of these, they continue to encourage God's people to, regardless of what the times are, we are to live by faith. But little did they know, the Jews in that time there, little did they know that Malachi would be the last of a long line of God-sent Scripture-writing prophets. And again, because these last verses were God's last words for a long time, they should no doubt be a source of direction and a source of encouragement during the so-called silent time. And with this intro, I want you to look at Malachi chapter 4, verse 4 again. Verse 4 says, Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. So these last few verses here, as the Jews are about to embark on Who knows how long, they don't even know it's the last prophet at this point, but God knows. We don't even know if Malachi knows. But God inspires Malachi to give them these last few verses as they're not going to hear from me for a long time, at least not in the the form of Scripture. And one of the last things he tells them, look at this, remember the law of Moses. Remember the law. I think that's interesting. So one of the last things God through the prophets preached unto the Jews before Christ was remember the statutes. Remember the judgments. Remember the law of Moses. Now, in context, and part and and partly from our New Testament perspective, it's like Malachi is saying, "There's a long road ahead, and in all the highs and the lows, no matter what you face, remember the law. Remember the law." Now, verse one and two of this short chapter, and even before that, in chapters three, two, and one, we learn that God will indeed separate the wicked from the righteous. That's predicted there in Malachi. But before that, there's going to be some struggles. And even though the temple was rebuilt at this time, even the roads, these 400 years are going to prove to be very difficult for the Jews. In fact, when Malachi penned this prophecy, the Jews were still under the Medo-Persian Empire, still under the rule, King Cyrus's decree. 
in time, um, Israel would be conquered by the Greeks. They, then they would be conquered by the Egyptians. And then they would be conquered by Syria. And ultimately, they would be conquered by Rome. Four times in 400 years did the world power shift over Israel. That's not fun. In 164 B.C., under Syrian control, the Seleucid king, Antiochus IV, forbade temple worship. He, he forbade temple sacrifice. He murdered many of the Jews. And he made sacrifices to Zeus in the Holy of Holies. But in all these struggles and more, God knew they were coming. And he says, remember the law. In all these struggles and more, until you hear from me again, remember the law of Moses. Remember the commandments. Remember the feast. Remember the sacrifices. I mean, think about this. Of all the things God could have told them to remember, he chose the law. He chose the law. As we have learned in our study of the end times and during our Sunday school hour, the Old Testament was filled with covenants, yes? And one of those covenants was the Mosaic Covenant, or the law. And while many of the Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled in the first coming of Christ, none more so than the law. None of them were fulfilled. In fact, the Mosaic Law finds its complete fruition, its complete fulfillment in the cross. Romans chapter 10, verse 4 says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. And Galatians 3.24 says, The law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. It's almost like God through Malachi is telling them, Remember the law because Christ is coming. And when you put all that together and you look at the law and how He fulfills the law, and not just your, your bloated understanding of the law, but the law of Moses as it is written. So again, it's no surprise if Christ is the end of the law and the law is our schoolmaster that brings us to Christ, it's no surprise that God closes the Old Testament canon of Scripture with a command to remember the law of Moses, not just for obedience's sake, but for fulfillment. Jesus would come to fulfill the law, so He told them to remember. John chapter 1, verse 17, the Bible says, The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The law points to Jesus Christ. And while this passage here in Malachi was clearly written to the post-exilic Jews, it's still Scripture. So there's something for us, yes? There's something there for us because all Scripture is, again, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And I believe the most important application, remember there's interpretation and then there's application. And I believe the most important application for us is the same for us as it was and is to the Jews in that the law is designed to point people to Jesus Christ. It's designed to bring us unto Christ. In other words, the only standard for us from a holy and a sinless God is that we are also to be a holy and a sinless people. That's the law of God. That is the standard of God. He cannot change His standards. He's God. He changes not. He is perfect and sinless. And we thereby are demanded, therefore are demanded to be also holy and a sinless people. And after contrasting the righteousness of Jews with that of the Gentiles, or the lack thereof, rather, Romans 3.22 and 23 states this, that there's no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In Romans chapter 7, verse 7, Paul wrote, I had not known sin, but by the law. Put differently, today and for us, God's standards 
show us that we need a redeemer. How many of us are sin free? How many of us can go a week or a day or even a couple of minutes without having the wrong thought or thinking the wrong thing or, or, or saying the wrong thing and so forth? I had not known sin, Paul wrote, but by the law. And we had not known sin if we'd not seen what's written in this book. God's holy standard. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin, what we earn through sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. To the Jew, Malachi preached, Remember ye the law of Moses. For us, we are to remember God's holy standard, which points to our need for redemption. And just like the Jews were to go through a so-called silent period, if you will, remembering the law, you and I are to endure every day today remembering the fulfillment of the law, which is Jesus Christ, our redemption. Regardless of what life throws at us, the ups and downs, regardless of how hard work is or how easy it is, good, bad, or indifferent, we are to remember the law, remember the fulfillment of the law, remember our redemption. I can put it this way, remember the cross. No matter what we go through, the cross keeps us focused. Remember the cross Remember Jesus Christ. Remember. And then notice also Malachi. Ignore, I just noticed those verse references up there are wrong. Just ignore those. <laughs> We're in Malachi. Um, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 says, Behold, I will send you the Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So here we are in verse 5. In verse 4, there was a clear command to remember. Very clear. We see the word remember. And now in verse 5, we have, I believe, a clear implication, if you will, to receive what God sends or who God sends, namely the prophet Elijah. So we are to remember the law and we are to receive the prophets, receive Elijah, receive the teaching of the prophets. This is again to the Jews there in the post-exilic Israel. So God, let's just read verse 5 again. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So God, through Malachi, told the post-exilic Jews that Elijah was coming. He is coming. He will be sent to you with the obvious implication here, I think, to receive him. That's why he's telling them that he's coming. He gives them his mission, what we'll get to here in a moment, to turn the hearts of the fathers and the, and the children and so forth. But the whole reason that he's sending Elijah is for, that them, for them to receive him, to receive the prophet Elijah and to receive his teachings. So very clearly, the Jews were given a task as they approached this new period of silence to remember the law and to look for the Lord. And if the Jews were not careful, I think they could have easily got caught up in looking for Elijah instead of the Lord. So that's important. He says, Behold, I will send you Elijah before the coming of the Lord. So we're looking for the Lord, not Elijah. And unfortunately, I think many of the Jews did get caught up in looking for Elijah instead of the Lord. In fact, today there is even a tradition, even today, uh, or, or Orthodox Jews leave a place for Elijah at the table during Passover, hoping that he walks through the door. No doubt the presence of Elijah would create excitement in the heart of the devout Jew, for he knew his Lord was soon to follow. But unfortunately, for the most part, this tradition has failed to recognize what the New Testament teaches about Elijah. Some 400 years later, after the writing of Malachi, God, through the angel Gabriel, breaks the silence. 
and speaks to a man named Zacharias. In Luke chapter 1, verse 13, the Bible says, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. And in verse 17, Gabriel even said that John would go before the Messiah, get this now, in the spirit and power of Elijah doing what? Turning the hearts of the fathers to their children, just like Malachi's predicted here at the end of his book. So this John, of course, would become, would become known as John the Baptist. And while in humility, uh, I believe, he refused to accept the honor of Elijah. John didn't accept that title. Um, Jesus said in Matthew eleven thirteen and 14 that all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if ye will receive it, this is Elias, this is Elijah, which, will, which was for to come. Jesus made a direct reference to Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. And then in a very unique manner, Malachi chapter 4 is compared to a passage in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. Where here in Malachi chapter 4, we see Moses in verse number 4, and we see Elijah in verse number 5. But in a New Testament, in all the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see Moses and Elijah in one verse together. In one verse together. All three of the Synoptic Gospels record the name of Moses and Elijah together. Now, we have already read the verses here pertaining to Moses and Elijah and Malachi, but while Jesus and the apostles were on that mountain there, y'all remember that the mountain of transfiguration, Matthew chapter 17, verses 2 and 3, Jesus, uh, or Matthew 17 states that Jesus was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was as white as the light, and behold, there appeared unto him Moses and Elijah talking with him. Now, I've studied this mount of transfiguration, this scene. It's mind-boggling to me. I think it's great. There they are looking at Moses, who's in the past. They're looking at Jesus, who's in the future. Moses and Elijah in the past. Jesus in the future because he's in his glorified body, all communicating with the apostles in the present. Um, who knows what went on there? Uh, but we see Moses and Elias there, Moses and Elijah. And after that scene, Jesus again confirms that John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah, which then takes us back to Malachi and the purpose of chapter five or, or, or verse number five. So get this now: if we can imply the implication for the Jews to receive Elijah, can we also conclude that the Jews received Elijah? Did they receive John the Baptist? I don't think so. Unfortunately not. Jesus said in Matthew 17, 11, right after the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, uh, the event there, that Elijah is come already, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. The Jews did not receive John the Baptist as Elijah. They did not receive him in spirit and in power, not at all. In fact, uh, instead of giving him a place at the table, they put him in prison, and they decapitated him. And before we move on, I, wanna, I, wanna, I would like to highlight the words of Jesus again in Matthew chapter 11, verse 14. He says, if ye will receive it, this is Elias, this is Elijah, which was for to come. So the Jews were to remember the law and receive Elijah. And with that conclusion, I'd like to make a broad stroke application to the text from Malachi to us. Earlier in this message, I, I introduced our reference, Hebrews chapter 1, and that God spoke to the Jews 
through the prophets in all different kinds of manners for some 4,000 years. But the next verse there in Hebrews is chapter, uh, Hebrews chapter 1 is verse 2, which states that in these last days that God has spoken unto us by His Son. In other words, the core and focus of the entire New Testament, in fact, the core and focus of the entire Bible points to our Lord Jesus Christ. So what is my broad stroke application? We are to receive it. Don't reject the truths of the gospel. Receive the teachings. Receive the Word of God. Don't reject any of these things. Receive them. Now, without being irreverent to devout Jews today, let me say this. Don't leave an empty place in your mind's table for the truth, but then reject that truth when it doesn't look like the truth that you want it to be. That's exactly what the Jews did. God has created within us a special place for His Son. Do not fill that place with anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive Him and receive His teachings, which truly leads to the very last verse of the Old Testament and our last implication for the morning. Again, I say implication because the command to receive in verse 4 is clear and straightforward, but it is followed by some strong inferences from the text. And that first inference or implication is found in verse 5, and it is, as we have already seen, to receive Elijah. The second implication is based on the word turn in verse number 5. Look at verse 5 again, the last verse, or verse number 6, I mean. Uh, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Now, in context, this verse is telling us that Elijah's mission will be, what, it, what his mission will be, and what he will take part in, turning hearts. That's his goal. That's his, that's his job. That's his mission. So the implication, therefore, if you ask me, is one of repentance. They were to remember the law, receive the prophets, and repent. I think it's interesting that the last passage in the Old Testament speaks of repentance. It speaks of hearts turning, hearts, fathers, children, and so forth. And then it ends with a curse, which we'll come back to. But as a prophet and a preacher, Elijah's purpose would be to be used of God in a way that yielded repentance. In fact, this was the core of what John the Baptist preached, repentance. Matthew chapter 3, verse 2 says, In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Mark chapter 1, verse 4 states that John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So as the Jews faced a long stretch of time before God would speak to Zacharias in Luke chapter 1, we read that they should be ready for the Lord through repentance. So get this now, 400 years is a long time. I, I kind of did some research there. It's about 16 to 18 generations of father, child, father, child, parents, and children, and so forth. 16 generations of fathers and children. Now, if this letter was given to us today... If we just got it today, these last few verses, this last chapter, and God promised to us that a prophet would one day come and turn our hearts to our parents, and as children turn, or as parents turn our hearts back to our children, would our, would our response be to simply rebel and live how we want to live, knowing that one of these days Elijah is going to walk through the door and cause us to repent? I don't think this is what God had in mind. I don't think the intent here was for, 
well, I can live how I want to. Elijah's going to come, and I'll just not have my heart turned until then. Again, I don't think this is what God had in mind. Yes, he will send Elijah. And because of Elijah's preaching, many will repent. But the intent was not just to rebel until God sends the prophet. The intent, I believe, is to repent, to repent. You know, regardless of what the Jews faced during this almost half a century without a word from God in Scripture, living a life of repentance always, even today, brings glory to God. In a very real sense, John the Baptist, who came in the spirit and power of Elijah, did not turn every father's heart and every child's heart. Otherwise, he would not have been killed. And while we may not be comfortable with the last ten words of the Old Testament, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse, the failure of the people to repent is followed by a curse. Repent, turn, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. This is why many people, many scholars, many students of the Scripture believe that Elijah will return as one of those two prophets in the, Old, in, the, in, the, in the book of Revelation. He will return as one of those prophets during the tribulation when the earth will clearly be smitten and under a curse, no doubt, for a lack of repentance. Again, living a life of repentance always brings glory to God. Remembering, receiving, and repenting is truly the key even today, for us to live victorious Christian living. Remember the cross. Remember the cross. Receive the truth and repent daily. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be as a contrite spirit, be of a contrite spirit. All of us, Every single one of us, the best of us, the worst of us, all of us, unfortunately, sin against our God. But the key is to stay close to our God by keeping a short list, if you will, of unrepentant sin. Keep that list of unrepentant sins as short as possible. Even if it's possible to get into a habit right when you sin, to repent that very moment. Ask for the Lord's forgiveness. Keep that, Lord, uh, that list short. The longer that list is, the farther you are from God. The closer that list, the closer you are to God. Repent often. Repent. Whether you have aught between you and a friend, a family member, or a co-worker, or even God at this very moment, make it right today and draw near to God in repentance. You know, life is too short. I tell uh, my children this all the time. My daughter, you know, she's married, and I tell her about, you know, she's going through those first couple months of, of life, and I tell her one of the things that I look back after being married for a couple years, and um, I look at, you know, I spent more, I spent too much time being aggravated over things, right? I spent too much time wasting and living those times that you, they're at all with each other. Don't waste those times. Don't, don't use our Throw those times or give those times to the Lord. I, I don't know if I'm getting this right, uh, getting across a lot. I, there needs to be more love in our life, more repentance, more reconciliation. You know, you have that fight with your wife and you're, you're not talking to her for three days. That's three days you can never get back. You're going to want those three days when you get to be my age, I guess. Life is too short, and God is always waiting. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. And before we close, I must say this as we kind of draw down this morning. If you do not know, if you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, if you are not sure that if you died this very moment, right now, that you would be with the Lord, please don't wait another moment. It is that important. If you were to walk out this door and the Lord returned, would you go with Him? 
Would, he, would you be a part of his family? Are you a part of his family? Please don't wait another moment if you're not sure. Let me rearrange these, these, um, these out, this outline here this morning for, for emphasis. We must remember. Remember, we don't meet God's holy and sinless standard. Remember our need for redemption. Don't go through this life thinking, I'm going to be good enough when I get to heaven. It just doesn't work that way. None of us are good enough. There is not one good. No, not one, the Bible says. We don't meet God's holy standard. Remember that we need redemption. And then I'm going to jump down to the third one. We ought to repent. Because we don't meet God's standard, we must repent and ask God to forgive us of sin and of self. We are not accepted by God without Jesus Christ. And which brings us to the middle one there, receive. Redemption is found only in the person of Jesus Christ, God's holy Son. Receive Him today as the payment for your sins. You know, the end of the Old Testament might end in a curse. We see that right there. But our lives don't have to. We do not have to leave this planet with a curse. Galatians 3.13 says that Christ hath redeemed us from the curse, from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. Friends, there is coming a time when it will be too late. Don't wait for Elijah. Wait for the Lord. Repent and receive Jesus Christ today. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Let us go to the Lord in prayer.